Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So today I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, John Hambly. Hello, John. Good morning, Marion. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on today because you've written a book and it's not a technical surveyor book, which is because uh, <laughs> I've interviewed a few authors now. I work with a few a few um, authors. They've got some great technical books that I learned and studied from back in the day. But you've written your, I don't know what you call it, your memoirs, your life story. I think it's probably classed as a memoir, but it's... You know, it's it goes in so many different directions that there is a bit of technical in it, and there's um, you know a lot of humour. Obviously, there's a lot of sport in it, but um, yeah, I suppose it's a life story, but it's a, a story that shows that I've learned a lot along the way with my particular life experiences, that, which I call beacons within the mm. book. You know, certain points in my life where they're very pivotal, and I can see why it's taken me in a certain direction. And I've done a few of these podcasts now, and I think more surveyors should write their life stories and memoirs because we happen to be surveyors, but we're people, you know, and we've got amazing stories in the context of we just happen to work in surveying in some yeah. way, shape or form. And um, so I'd like to see some more more books written. Uh, for those who, who don't know you, John, could you just introduce yourself to the kind of surveyor you are and the work that you've, that you've done? Well, I'm retired now um, because of um, the illness, multiple sclerosis that I contracted 20-odd years ago. I managed to keep working as a building surveyor in private practice. I had a partnership in Wimbledon, um, but unfortunately, the demands of the job and the stress that it was putting on me led to retirement in 2007. But I was dealing a lot with um, residential refurbishment, private and uh, public sectors, as well as, as I got more disabled, I'd been concentrated on the party wall side of things, boundary disputes. That's because I was more office bound. And yeah, it it was a, a very interesting period of my life trying to adapt as my illness developed. I then had to change the way I practiced being a surveyor but um yeah not always fulfilling sometimes very hard but uh 20 odd years as a surveyor I don't have too many grumbles just talk through um actually some of the uh, I've read your book that lovely book I have to say it really resonated with me which I didn't expect because I'm not you (laughs) and you've had a, a really interesting career a lot of focus on sport and rugby which I know nothing about. And I'll be honest with you, John, I skipped through some of those bits. For me, it was a bit like reading Harry Potter and I skipped through all the Quidditch bits. Yeah, it was interesting, yeah. but it didn't really <laughs> didn't really resonate. But no, there was a there was a lot of stuff that that did, but really amazingly, just the resilience that you've that you've built up through your career. And that actually started at quite a young age where you talk about bullying and yes. being bullied. 
yeah, yeah, that was at um, a grammar school, sort of the age of 13, 14. And um, it was a very difficult period of my life because I had a sick parent. My father was very ill and uh, I came from quite a deprived background and I didn't want to put a lot of pressure on my parents. So I just sucked it up and got on with it. But it was those formative years when I got over the bullying and through sport, actually through rugby, that I began to formulate the working as a team, the team ethic. And that has stood me in good stead, not only as being a surveyor, but also in creating the charity that I've gone on to um, mm-hmm. to work on in Guildford to build a centre for people with MS. And that not only comes from the fact that I'm a team man, but also the fact that surveying gave me that ability to stay in the fight. Um, I, I don't know whether you quite understand that. You you know, you sort of talk about um, rugby maybe not being your thing, but I, I find there are a lot of parallels in, in mainstream life. But if you've got those abilities within you to to train hard, to, to play hard, and that's not just sport. You know, you you train hard as a surveyor and you you, you work hard. And, and those particular values have stood me in very good stead to build this charity. And that's what I, I, I sort of took from it is that, you overcame the the bullying and that actually shapes you know and you talk about actually all the, all the way through that, that shapes you um you talk about your fishing setting up the the fishing club and creating yeah. your network which i which i loved and you're right you know we do what we do we just happen to do it in the world of surveying and the skills that you bring whether it being governor of a school council you know whether it's being um playing football or rugby or whatever there are skills that you learn that you bring into your work but then also in reverse as well and that's obviously what's happened with your center that you've got your property experience into building the center Uh, let me ask you if we sort of go back why did you pick building surveying yeah that's very interesting actually if you read the early part of the book I did well at school I got good results but I was you know I was a Cornish boy very happy with my environment down there. I had no aspirations to go to university. And in fact, I was working part-time in a in a fishing gun shop and I was really enjoying that. It's a kid's dream. And one particular old chap that I used to go fishing with was delighted that I'd done well. But he then said to me, you're not going to stay in this shop, are you? You know, we would cut off our right arm to get the grades that you've got for our nephew who flunked his exams. You've got to do something with it what are you good at? And I went, well, nothing really. My family are all in building. My father was a worked in a lumber yard. My brother was a carpenter. My uncle was a carpenter. And it was, he just said to me, well, building's in your blood then. Why don't you look at doing a building career? So I did a little bit of hunting around and ended up at Leicester Polytechnic doing a building surveying degree, but really drifted into it, to be honest. No one from my family had ever been away to to higher education and uh it was a it was a hard few years I, I i didn't settle at all away from home it may have been my cornish roots but it was the fact that there were a lot of students there that were sponsored they were from abroad they were, they were senior and you know i was a fairly young uh 18 year old when i went away i wasn't really very mature i found it hard mm-hmm. yeah, that's how i sort of 
Yeah, and I, um, you know, I hear that a lot on the podcast that people fell into surveying or drifted into it. And you're right, actually, a lot of these building surveying courses across the country, they are a real mix of, of ages. I was a mature student, albeit 24, 25 when I did it, you know, but you, you don't find many youngsters, I guess, sort of going through through it. But there's something that we bring, I think, to the, the job and the industry, that level of maturity and life experience that you you need to be a surveyor particularly I think on the residential side because when you walk into people's properties you walk into their lives warts and all and that life experience is is really important so being mature is a is a good thing but I can see how it would also take time for you to build up confidence you know to get you know, to get into the role and find your groove, I guess. I love where you sort of talk about your your first experience of job interviews, <laughs> you know, and, and back in the day, you know, and, and how things were and, and things have changed, you know, with technology. But you know what, the nerves of the, those first job experiences and job yeah. interviews, they're no different now to what it, to what it was then. <laughs> I think the guy that interviewed me as a recruitment agent to go for my first interview... I mean, he knocked me back by just saying that I had a terrible Cornish burr with my accent um, and it wouldn't fit in in London life. Well, it's very true. The first firm that I joined, it was ridiculed for several months. But, you know, as you can hear now, my Cornish burr isn't there like it was 30 odd years ago. But um, back then it was it was a real thing. People were not used to having a West Countryman in their office. It was all very West End, hoorah Henrys, I suppose we would have called them. And uh, I, I did feel quite isolated. That Again, that's resonated with me because I, I used to have quite a strong Welsh accent. I'm from I'm North Wales. It tends to come out when I've had a glass of wine, more so now than, than not. But I've moved around a lot and it's it's changed. But my husband, who doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine for me to say this, but when I first, he's from the, the North East, and when I first met him, he would ask for a cork, a cork at the bar. And I'd be yeah. what? It's like, no, a Coke. You had to learn yeah. to, you know, it was <laughs> bath into the bath. And, and you okay. do have to adapt to your surroundings. And I I don't know, I'd, I'd like to think that we're more accepting of um, the uh, the accents and uh, diversity um, uh, these days. But uh, yeah. yeah, that did that did uh, resonate with me. And you, you talk about rugby and it's, It's interesting in the book, you know, about the confidence that gave you the network of people that you you then got to know. And that really helped you then in your career, didn't it? It did. I I got a lot of work out of rugby. I was skipper at this club for four or five years. I don't know whether that gave me an entitlement for people to come to me and say, would you do my house survey? But I did so many, not only surveys, I would do little bits of repair jobs for guys at the club and um beyond that immediate network it was you know there's a rugby community within the RICS and Mm. it it wasn't all about rugby but that was the binder that that enabled me to to, to build up the network of uh, contacts that I had that enabled me to develop the business with my business partners so sport and particularly rugby's core values were very important in setting up that network Mm. and I guess it's um you know, if you're not into rugby, like me, or if you're not into a particular kind of... Welsh. <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, I do. I, you know, obviously when they, they play, I support them, but oh, I can tell you who's who. I have other skills in life. <laughs> I'll, I'll make a list of them and send you them, John. Okay. <laughs> but if you're not part of a sporting network like that, you can feel very much on the on the outside. And I see that uh, a lot with people, perhaps more so with women who, I mean, rugby is quite a masculine sporting yeah. environment, and that's a trait that goes straight through surveying as well. But not yeah. being part of something, you can feel on the outside and that's very very hard isn't it it is you know that particularly applied to me working in London first off yeah I was a bit homesick but it was very much them and us in terms of the office the office was very high-flying West End just off Bond Street and uh yeah I, I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole whatever the analogy is mm. In the book, you talk about those sort of early days working as a surveyor, and it did seem to be a lot of boozy lunches. Culture back then, in the uh, yeah, 80s. as you would ex- as you'd really expect, or the the stories that you hear of, you know, boozy lunches, working hard, all a bit jokey, but it all comes good in the end. Yeah, I think that wouldn't have been if I tried to be a different person. I don't think it would have worked for me. I had to be who I was. People had to accept that. I was quite prepared to pack it in and go home, back to Cornwall. I would probably have tried to work within the surveying industry, but the opportunities would have been few and far between. So, you know, at the end of the day, I I was just being me. But there was a lot of, as I say, the culture back in the 80s was get in really early, do five or six hours and then go out for a couple of pints at lunchtime. That doesn't happen now. Well, it may do, but nowhere near as much. But that was accepted. And I think we still did a decent day's work, but we we played quite hard. And that culture, working really hard, actually can lead to a lot of burnout. And that's something that hasn't really changed, I don't think, in some sectors of surveying, uh, particularly with some of the surveyors I see and, and coach is that there's this expectation of you are there early, you do stay the latest, busy is this badge of honour. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't really seem to have changed in some areas. No, I think, having if you've read the, you, I know you've read the book, but I worked very hard. I had, a, I had a very good mentor, but it took a little while to get into that mindset. But once you gain your confidence, I didn't really find it particularly difficult to get in at six in the morning and do five or six hours before having a break. But that was just something that was instilled in me at the time. As I then went into private practice and and being a partner myself, those same work work ethics followed through. But I didn't demand that of the younger surveyors that we employed. But they, I think, drew off what we were. My partner and I were very hardworking. And those work ethics, I think, wore off on them. I was speaking to one of the chaps that we employed. He's now got his own practice in London. And he was saying, you know, you guys really don't realise how much you instilled in me that right work ethic. I mean, I talk in the book about the client always being right. They're not. But that was maybe from my retail days when I was working in Cornwall. You know, you try and please the customer as best you can. But that can be a bad thing in surveying because... 
you're trying your utmost and then the client wants a little more and it's stressful and it you know you've got to draw the line somewhere maybe that isn't quite the same these days and as a a leader or a a manager of people there's that fine balance of yes you set an example and you instill that work ethic but it's remembering to take the rest of the team along with you and some younger surveyors in particular won't have that stamina yet to do that and it's also doing it in a you know in a, in a compassionate way but I guess also these days there's more of a focus on actually allowing yourself to be the family man who says do you know what I, I finish at half five six o'clock so I can go and put my kids to bed rather than having to work straight through and we've got um, maternity and paternity laws that have changed you know since you know yeah. back in the day yeah. but I think allowing ourselves to be set that example but in a really authentic way is so important yeah, I agree. I think maybe years ago, if you didn't work extremely long days, it was seen as a bit of a weakness. Um, and I agree with you now. When I look back, you know, I've got four children and I'm arriving home at 8.30 at night. I might just about have had time to read them a book. And then it was get something down your neck and then go and do a bit more work. So I'm not sure you could tell me better than I would know um, whether that still exists. If you've got a successful business and you've got clients demanding you meet deadlines, I suppose you've still got to do it. But I'm not so sure that um, in retrospect, if I, if I had a young family now and I was fit and well, I think I'd want to spend a bit more time with them. And I guess it's about working out what's important and what your priorities are. Absolutely. I don't think I was being selfish. I was just wanting to please the clients, wanting to take pressure off other people at work. We didn't overphase our, our trainees, our graduates. There was a lot more of them working alongside us before we then really let them loose with clients and their own schemes. And that may have been a bit too slow for some people who had aspirations just to get straight into big jobs. But, you know, we had our uh, professional indemnity insurance to preserve. So we were only going to let the handbrake off when we felt they were ready. Tell me, how did you feel about setting up your own business? Because it's quite a jump for a lot of people to, you know, to go from employed to running the show. How did you feel about that? I was very fortunate. Again, I drifted into something, but When I left the West End, I went and worked for a slightly larger practice in Tower Bridge Road. And the particular chap I worked for was really very charismatic, but he wanted his pound of flesh. So I worked even harder and harder. He wanted me to be an associate, eventually a a partner there. I stayed there about four years. But what it enabled me to do was that transition from the West End where I felt I was a a chap who graduated and I'd reached the top of where I was going to go with that company. I was never going to become a partner there. But the other practice I went to was a stepping stone, but it instilled in me those values of, of teamwork again. And I was then able to gain my confidence and think, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, to set up with, in fact, it was a chap that I worked with in the West End, and it was a really comfortable feeling. It was it was our own little baby rather than working for other people, and uh, I found that transition really 
very easy. And so going back to your rugby and the teamwork skills that you've obviously developed, how did that play into your your working life then of, of setting up this business? I mean, how how big was it? Was it just the two of you at the start? Did it how bigly big did it expand? Actually, it's interesting because the, the company I worked for before I set up the partnership, they were slightly bigger, but um, it was the same field, residential, refurb, party wall work. And that was the beginning of the sort of team side of it. So I'd, I, I was transferring my skills from coaching at the rugby club and learning how to treat people rather than just thinking of yourself. So then when I set the partnership up, with my friend from the West End, I felt that I knew how to to deal with people, not only clients, but to bring in fresh blood into the practice. We remained small, but we remained small because we wanted to have that control in terms of an overview of what everything that was going on. The practice that I left in Towerbridge Road actually are now huge. The chap that I left, a great friend there, has developed it into, I think he's got 50 or 60 employees. And, uh, I mean, they're really doing very well. And, in fact, if you read the, the, the end of the book, he came in at the very end and said, we're that big now, we've got our corporate social responsibility thing to play out. Can I do your final extension of the charity? And, uh, yeah, I had all of that for nothing from them. So that all boils down to working as a team man you know people reward you in later life and uh, I think they value working together there's always give and take some places I think people can be too domineering and my sort of work adage was always to embrace everyone's views don't make people shy away from asking questions if they're not confident about something then uh, please ask me. I would have asked when I was in your position 10 or 15 years earlier. So, yeah, that, that's a big thing for me is not being uh, frightened of asking. There's, um, you know, there's sort of that unwritten rule, you know, of the door's always open. You can always come in, but you don't. Yeah. <laughs> the unwritten rule is you don't go in there. It's a real balance to try and get that, that, cult, that culture right you know, of... It is, without being too pally. Yeah, yeah. You, you like to be a friend to the people you work with, but at the end of the day, you are a boss to others and um, occasionally you have to play hardball, which mm. I try to avoid most of my working career, but, um, you know, circumstances will contrive to make difficult circumstances. Mm. But, you know, that structure is there to help people succeed. Yeah. You know, there are so many rules that we have, um, you know, not just in our our work, you know, our RICS standards, your driving uh, driving license and how you're meant to drive on the road. You know, if mm. you think about all the rules that we have as soon as you open the door to to go out, but they should be there to help us succeed, not to not to hinder us. That that's sort of the real the the balance, isn't it? And it's interesting you say about the, the size of your company because I meet a lot of surveyors who get inundated with work and they're thinking, I need to expand. I need to expand. When actually they probably need to think of differently and reframe it. Of what if I chose clients that I liked 
and kind of work that I liked and the size of the team that I want. It doesn't have to be big because for a lot of people, the pressure of running a big company and becoming a, a corporate or mini corporate is actually not quite, you know, mm. it doesn't align with their values and the kind of companies and people they want to be. For me, I find now that I've got a sweet spot. I used to work for a corporate. I then went to work for myself. I didn't really like that. That was quite lonely. I had nobody to talk yeah. to. <laughs> Should have thought about a podcast then. And now I've got a nice sweet spot where I work with my partners at, at Blue Box and it feels like I'm part of something, but I'm independent enough that I can I can do my own thing. Yeah. But it's it's taken me time to to work that out. And I think that's in important for for people who are looking to work for themselves is to think about well do I like the big crowds or actually do I like a small dedicated team I can feel part of and that's where the teamwork then can 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 be successful can't it yeah I agree I mean you you talk about being weighed down by inquiries and instructions coming in The, the the fact was if we took on extra work we had a lot of consultants that we could pull in to build up that team Okay, they weren't direct employees, but they were guys that we really trusted. And um, the team could grow according to the the weight of instructions coming in. So we might have been a small practice, but we were a practice that had the ability to deal with much bigger schemes because we drew in other consultants. Mm. Tell me a bit about your illness then and your your diagnosis because it sounds from you know from reading in the book there were quite a few early warning signs that something wasn't quite right but it took a while to to get to the point where you got the quite frankly horrible news yes I mean looking back I probably had symptoms five or six years before I was diagnosed but playing a, a contact sport like rugby you just think that you've you've tweaked a, a nerve or something and being the breed that we are, you you dust yourself down and, and get on with it. But once I was diagnosed in 99, it took me a while to, to really come to terms with it. I, I was very fortunate that I spent three or four months working from home and my business partner was bringing work down to me. But I, I just didn't, I couldn't face clients direct. I felt as though I fundamentally changed as a person and physically and mentally. But Actually, all it was was shock, and I was having to to deal with that. It's a life-changing moment, and I think I described it in the book as falling into a chasm. I I really was very lost for a while, and it, it was lucky that I had such a good business partner that was compassionate and sort of understood where I was going, what I was going through. Once I'd got that through that period of understanding that the disease wasn't going to stop me in my tracks, MS can be quite forgiving if you respect it. But if you push the the boundaries and you push yourself very hard physically and mentally, it does come back and bite you. And I kept getting relapses. And um, so I was off work, I was back at work. And I learned after a while to change my my style of work. I was still working working reasonably hard, but in a different way. That enabled me to control the the illness for the first five or six years. But of course, it is a degenerative neurological illness and it does catch up with you. And um, that eventually led to me falling over. If I was on a site, I couldn't walk properly. I definitely couldn't go up scaffolding. So I had to modify what I was doing as a professional. But MS is different than 
let's say something like a cancer diagnosis where you know you could have a terminal diagnosis within a few weeks of identifying a problem ms is a bit more of a slow burner if you're lucky you know here i am 20 years on okay i'm in an electric wheelchair but i've still got my uh my intellect i can still put things on paper as i have done on in the book and i've i've managed to build this charity and my surveying skills are right to the fore there not only in the construction but also the management of, of pulling people together and, and that's where i'm very grateful to the surveying uh, profession is that it it taught me how to bring people together how to put a project together and show people what we have now can be so much better and um, I think a lot of people agree with that now they thought I was a bit crazy at the time. Tell me a bit about the Samson Centre and, and how that came about because that sounds like an incredible project to even dream and think about at the time and then to actually then you know deliver it. Yeah well I, it was my frustration really that I wasn't able to get treatment on the NHS at you get five or six sessions with a physio and then that's it you're left cast afloat without any support that was back in the the late 90s and I just I found a small local group that worked out of a a village hall and um, it was good but it clearly had its limitations and I just putting my surveying hat on I wondered whether I could create something that was bespoke and much, obviously, much more facilities and uh, uh, proper staff. So I, I put, again, uh, I put the costings down as if I was to surveyor. These are the options. If we build something new, this is if we convert a building, this is if we rent somewhere. And the it was a small charity. They were very nervous. With big numbers I was talking about. And I said, don't, you know, don't worry, I've done this before. It's my profession and I've sat in residence meetings and been shot down before. I wasn't particularly perturbed by that, but it was the key thing really was raising the money. I had no experience of fundraising really other than running the London Marathon and doing a few other little bits. So that was my shot into the unknown really. I wasn't worried about building a building. It was raising the money was my problem. So um and from there we we raised uh, a quarter of a million very quickly which enabled us to get in bed with a couple of other uh, groups that were looking to build the center and we ended up uh, being constructed in two years and from in the intervening 15 years we now have 13 staff we treat 200 people a week something like 10,000 sessions of therapy a year. And we're providing, you know, one-to-one physio, group physio, gym sessions to keep people moving. And we have this wonderful oxygen centre, which was the last thing we built, where people are having 100% oxygen therapy in a barometric chamber. And that really does, uh, if you're early stage, multiple sclerosis diagnosed, oxygen therapy virtually stops it in its tracks if you can stay with it a lot of people get bored it's a long hour and a half sitting in a chamber on your own and you have to do that two or three times a week initially just to get on top of the inflammation but that's something we're really promoting at the moment it's a big thing for us oxygen therapy 
And how is the centre with the pandemic? Did it have to close? We did have a a four-month closure period. So a lot of people were without any treatment for that period of time. And perhaps as importantly, we couldn't put on any fundraising events. So financially, it was a challenge, but um, we've got a very good board of trustees. You know, social media is a wonderful thing. I, I used to hate it, but it enabled us to get the message out there that please can you help us survive and be ready to to reopen, which we did in in uh, late July. And um, yeah, the doors were, were open and people flooded through again. But we're getting back to that situation now where we're a little bit twitchy about whether we've got a lockdown again. It will be punishing for us another six months like that. But we're in a good place. We've got some great supporters. And I guess that's um, you know, some of the consequences of a, a pandemic and, you know, that, that aren't as obvious is that, yeah, OK, places have to close down so that we can save lives. But actually, there, there's a knock-on effect of people who can't get treatment you know, and it affects yeah. their, their day-to-day lives, you know. it's um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, some some people are just not getting any treatment for crucial illnesses, and um, I feel for them. Mm. At least we can open our doors and people can come back, and there's, it's a safe haven. But there are a lot of people that haven't got that at the moment. It's mm. very traumatising, I'm sure. In the book, you talk about sort of being a surveyor and parts of the job you didn't really like and I I've I've spoken to a number of surveyors over the years and it's interesting to sort of try and sort of get behind well why did you become a surveyor and yes lots of them talk about falling into the job or drifting into it but I think there's something there about uh, about community about the way that we live whether that's putting numbers on a spreadsheet or actually going out on site and negotiating with with tenants there's something there about that sort of social built environment that resonates with us and there are lots of you know lots of different reasons for that um and when you were just talking then about the the samson center which i know you're really passionate about it sounded as though you you found some more enthusiasm for the the industry for the job in putting to, <laughs> smiling now you know putting yeah. together the numbers and things you know did, did that did that happen did you sort of find more of a purpose yeah it's funny you should say that because of all the trustees that were involved in the job I was the construction professional and I'm not saying they're hanging on every word because ultimately the building was what we needed but I think because I'd had such a broad spectrum of of work uh, as a surveyor over the years, whether it, whether it was doing the maintenance on a, a huge block of flats in Brixton or whether it was just going in and, and doing a small house survey for a little old lady, it, it gives you such a broad brush approach to life. And um, I found it particularly useful surveying because... Again, getting back to that team ethic that we built up, but it it does teach you, as I re- reflected in the book, it, it does teach you a lot of different uh, aspects of life. You don't realise it at the time, but you you know you're, you're able to apply yourself in so many different ways, and that's drawing on your surveying experience. In the book, you talk about uh, finding your faith again. Yeah. 
And in many ways, I don't know, is that is that an obvious thing? You know, you've had this, you know, bad news about the rest of your life. It wouldn't be a surprise that someone would, would find their, their faith again. But for me, it seemed as though actually you found a sense of purpose. A bit of both, I think, really. Mm. I had lapsed faith. I, I, you know, my mother was a, uh, not a devout Catholic, but a lady that uh, came from a re- religious background. I'd ignored that most of my life, but it's when you're confronted by adversity, you start to wonder what it's all about. And um, I think that's why I I reverted to to faith. I, I'm not a Bible basher by any means, but I have questioned, you know, why I'm here and what my purpose is. When you find your purpose, and we, you know, there are lots of um, professional and personal development people out there that can help you find your mission you know your values and and all of that stuff which looks great on a corporate brochure but nobody really believes but when you do the work and and this is something I do in my coaching and uh, and on the mastermind that I run when you do the work of understanding what's important to you Mm -hmm. and what your values are it can give you a really clear sense of direction as to the next step to take when you might feel stuck or in that analysis paralysis of that sort of tailspin. But it can also help you find the courage to do things you've never done before. Yeah. Like stand in front of people, I think you mentioned it in the book, you know, and, and ask for money, you know, or tell people about your, your crazy project, which you know will make a real difference to people. It can help you, you know, just just overcome those fears that have, have held you back for so long. But I just did have you a that... real fear of public yeah. speaking, but I do a lot of it now. And I believe that that fear was overcome in my early days as a surveyor because I was asked to do presentations when we were, you know, doing feasibility studies for a particular project, stand up in front of a, a room full of tenants that don't want their flats ripped out and refurbished. You know, you learn to take the flak, but the key to it was getting the message across in your initial presentation, trying to dampen down some of those fears that the residents had. And I was quite lucky coming from a council estate background. I felt as though I had a certain connection with people in social housing. It didn't get me out of every sticky hole, but, um, you know, it certainly helped understanding the people that I'd come from, I felt a certain empathy with council estate um, residents and a lot of housing association schemes I was involved with. I think it's a bit different, though, standing up, delivering some technical CPD or, you know, a, a technical project that you're working on to talking about something that you're really passionate about. And one of the things I talk to people when they're looking to do their their fellowship, I always say, say, start with a mind map of things you're most proud of in your career, because you then talk passionately about it and the enthusiasm will always seep through. And so looking at, you know, what's important to you, working out what your your purpose is. I mean, you know, you don't have to go and get yourself a a life debilitating illness like you have to find your purpose. You can do, do some of the work. But it can it can really help you be a force for good and really make a big impact and the change. And I think that comes back to sort of subconsciously that why we are surveyors, why we want to do this kind of work, because there's something there about that 
that social impact, that built environment impact, which is all about caring for people, making sure they've got roofs over their heads, that people are safe, warm, dry, you know, and that they can thrive in their environments. I really agree with that. I think if I was guilty of anything, and that would be to the detriment of the practice that we set up, and my partner was the same, is that we spent too much time chatting with people to understand what their needs were. A lot of our schemes would have been aids and adaptations, which is rather ironic given that I've ended up where I am now. But I was very interested in the human side of a lot of what we did. So again, that's maybe the compassionate side of me coming out, but I really couldn't be someone that sat in a room, hurried someone along to say, you know, what exactly do you want? Thank you very much. I'll go away and I'll work out on the drawing board. I wanted to know their backstory to try and understand them better and give them confidence that I was on their side and that we were working together. And that that would have probably meant that we were slower getting on to other jobs, but it was very important to me to to understand exactly the client's needs. And and I guess it's about you finding meaning to the job you know if you're going to put hours in yeah. you know, get up early and go around those grubby houses and, and sites it gives yeah. them meaning and, and purpose to to what you're doing I, I couldn't agree more there's nothing worse than churning something out without really having any connection to that job I mean perhaps later in my career when I was doing a lot of party war work it was a little bit more abrasive in that you know a lot about party war work, but mm. you know, you've got two warring factions sometimes either side. In fact, more if you're dealing with a block of flats and trying to pull together everybody's wants and everybody's needs could tear you apart. So you have to be a little bit dispassionate in that situation. But I I was much happier working in an environment where I could sit down and have a face-to-face with a client. Party war work could be extremely demanding. And um, very, very bitty. Mm. Tell me about the process of writing a book. How did the book come about? It's weird, isn't it? (laughs) If someone had told me I'd I'd be a published author 10 years ago, I would have told them they were barking mad. You know, the the only thing I'd ever written is a dictating a 100-page spec like a robot. Writing a book really started for me in, in the oxygen chamber. I was... Spending, a, I spent 600 odd sessions in one single pod. Now, that is a lot of time. And whilst I was in there, you can listen to music, whatever. But I got bored and I just started finding that I was getting really vivid memories as a result of the treatment. And I'd wake up and think, oh, I better jot that down. So I started to just put a few notes down. And um, being the surveyor I am, then you start fleshing it out. You know, you've got the bones. And I wrote lots of individual chapters and then realised actually that there was a, a process in my life that had led to certain points. And I, I then started to link all the chapters up. And, well, I hope that the book you read flowed, apart from the rugby bit for you. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I had no aspirations to be an author. But, again, it gets back to the surveying part of me is it gave me the stamina to stay with it. I mean, a lot of jobs that we do as surveyors 
can go on for two or three years. Okay, drop in and out of them. You're not on them every day, but you need to be able to, to use that phrase again, stay in the fight. And um, that certainly helped me in terms of, I, I, I think my, I was fortunate that my English was sound enough to write a book. Maybe when I was a fledgling surveyor out of Cornwall, my Queen's English wouldn't have been up to it, but that was soon threatened. I didn't, I didn't read it with a, you know, with a Cornish accent. Maybe I, <laughs> maybe I should have at the start. <laughs> oh, I think you should have done actually. There may be a book coming up. <laughs> um, it's, it's very Cornish a lot of it though mm. as you will have realised you know I, it took me a long time to get the West Country boy out of me and I, I behaved badly for many years not badly as in crime but just not responsible there's the episode in the book where I I break down the office door to get go in and get my keys and you know that that's just diabolical and I'm, I'm not proud of any of that but Young, you're impetuous, frustrated. I was lonely, and um, things come out in strange ways when you're you're under pressure. What's next then? Promoting the book, book tour. Well, book I, it's book not, talk? not possible at the moment, really, is it? I, I did a live book launch on YouTube three or four weeks ago, where um, we had a few rugby players involved, uh, international players. And that was extremely good. The sales have been reasonably good. I have got a few podcasts coming up and, yes, promoting the book, but I'm still a trustee at the charity, so I've got my responsibilities in that respect. And um, it has been suggested that I write a second book, put all the bad bits in that one, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I, I did joke on the podcast about it being, it could be the alternative book, The Fifty Shades of Samson. Yeah, <laughs> I got home. I got um, absolutely well chastised by my wife for even mentioning something like that on film. So who knows? I, I could definitely. I've got enough tales that I could tell about surveying to make another book alone. Let alone all the things that we've done in developing the charity and my uh, experiences on the rugby pitch. There's a lot that hasn't been covered. There's a there's a really nice balance in the book, I think, of, you know, yes, I, I joke about the rugby and I, I didn't skip them. I just read them really quickly. Yeah, uh, but there's a really nice, nice balance of uh, of the, the rugby, you know, some some of the uh, towards the back where you've got um, some of your escapades as a surveyor. And uh, I love the getting locked in the bathroom. Because <laughs> yeah. quite frankly, that's happened to most of us. At some, at some stage on a bank um, holiday yeah yeah that there's was, a that was my worry <laughs> there's a there's a really nice nice balance but also some some really poignant moments you know it's a I, I came away and thought you know what that's a, a really lovely book and I'm glad to have read it and had the pleasure of of chatting to you today thank you very so, much thank you very much for your time today John Really enjoy chatting to you. And me too. It's been lovely, actually. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I'll put links to anything and everything in the show notes and on social media when um, when the podcast comes out. But lovely. God bless. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference visit us at blueboxpartners.com.